0: The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. Robin Perry discusses the importance of lament and the role of Israel in salvation history. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. We've been talking about lament uh, in Scripture, and uh, about uh, even when Jesus was on the cross and he declares, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And uh, many times people look at that and they see the despair included, but doesn't the that imply the entire psalm from which it comes with its conclusion that uh, resolves the sense of despair.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think we need to see that, when, and oftentimes when in the New Testament someone will quote from the Old Testament, they might just quote a verse or even a phrase, but they call to mind, I mean, their hearers will know the Scriptures, they'll be immersed in the Scriptures, and their hearers will call to mind the whole context, the whole story, the whole psalm, or whatever. So when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to remember that Jesus would have been well aware how the psalm ended, and the psalm ends with deliverance. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, it quotes from the the salvation part of the psalm and applies that to Jesus. And so, clearly, in the early church, the, the the, the Christ followers saw it as very appropriate to take the second part of the psalm as applying to Christ and the resurrection, and, and Christ as the one who praises God in the congregation. But I think we need to be careful to, to not to collapse or to somehow downgrade the despair or, or, or the lament of Christ on the cross. This is what he knew it was going to come out all happy in the end anyway, so he wasn't really lamenting I think it's important that we should say, Christ isn't just putting on a show. He isn't just feigning lament. He really is suffering in our humanity. He really is lamenting um, on our behalf. He's really expressing how precisely how he feels. And, and in fact, you know, it's the positive part. This this in Mark and Matthew, uh, this "Why have you forsaken me?" thing comes right near the end. This is something that's been building up through the whole. Uh, experience on Calvary, and it comes out near the end. You know, why have you forsaken me? It's not just a passing thing, and then he gets over it. Um, and so we need to, and we need to be to be aware of somehow collapsing the hope and the despair together. So he's despairing, but actually he's uh, he's he's happy. I mean, he's not. He's lamenting. Um, so we need to take that utterly seriously, but also to recognize that we, we have this, um, Jesus has not given up on God. So as I said earlier, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is lament within a relationship with God, and within a relationship with God where he knows, for the joy set before him, as it says in Hebrews, he endured the shame of the cross. And I think this is a really important tension uh, to hold on to, that we have Cross and resurrection. Alan Lewis um, does this wonderful thing on the theology of Holy Saturday, where he says, "You know, Holy Saturday is situated between cross and resurrection, and so you look. In in a way, it sort of holds them apart, and it holds them together. And so, it on the one hand, Holy Saturday means we can't have the cross without the resurrection, or the resurrection without the cross. We have to have the two. We have to hold them together, but we don't want to collapse them into some smudge." So it gives them a bit of distance between the two. And we need to hear them, he says, in stereo. So on the one hand, we need to hear the cross almost as it would have sounded, as it would have felt, without looking back in retrospect from the perspective of the resurrection. But on the other hand, if that's all you do, that's not a, that can't be a Christian way of looking at the cross. You at the same time have to hear the cross through the resurrection, seen through that, from that perspective. And I think something, this is very instructive for how we should understand lament and lament within the Christian life. And it, it, it's about, on the one hand, there's a space for lament and you, we don't want to collapse lament and salvation as like together so that the lament isn't really lament. We need to give it space to be itself. But it never has the last word. And in a biblical theology, it never has the last word. We are people who believe in the cross and the resurrection. And if you let lament have the last word, it's like saying Golgotha, but there's no empty tomb. And I think we see this, you know, if you look at the biblical book of Lamentations, this comes out nicely in that, you know, Lamentations ends without the, with the one voice that they're desperate to hear, The people in the book of Lamentations, they're saying, God, come on, save us, rescue us. And the one voice that does not speak by the end is the one voice they want to hear, which is the voice of God. And so the book ends in the canonical form, in which the form in which God has seen fit to preserve it for us, without the salvation. They're looking, they're calling, they're begging, and it hasn't come. But the Book of Lamentations is also preserved for us in a canonical context, and we can't read it as if it's not part of these other scriptures, um, which precede and follow it. And the Book of Isaiah, interestingly, picks up on Lamentations on numerous occasions. And here we hear and in the Book of in Isaiah we see God's speaking, God's solution. And just to give one example. Of this. In chapter one of Lamentations, over and over and over again, we see there is no one to comfort her. Jerusalem is desolate and there is no one to stand by her, no one to offer consolation. Isaiah picks this up specifically and and even begins, chapter 40 begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And over and over again, God says, I am Yahweh, your comforter. And so here, we see on the one hand you need to hear Lamentations to give it space to be itself because God preserved it in that form. And He doesn't. the, the, the Bible doesn't rush in and say, oh, but don't, you know, let's quick, 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 let's get to the hope, let's rush to the hope. Um, it, it leaves the pain, the breathing space. But it can't let it stay there. And it would be an unfaithful, it wouldn't be a Christian, it wouldn't be a Jewish, it wouldn't be a, a faithful hearing or reception of Lamentations to hear it just in its canonical form, but not in its canonical context. So we need to hear it in stereo. We need to. It, lamentations, in a sense, is Israel's reaction to its um, to exile. It's looking back to the exile and it's looking forward to the restoration. And it's a bit like Holy Saturday, as we look back to the cross and forward to the resurrection. And, and in some ways, as Christians, we can see lamentations as the Holy Saturday literature of Israel. It's a way of trying to. Look back at what was and what's been lost, what's been destroyed. It's looking around at the grave, at this destruction that surrounds them, and it's looking forward to a salvation that is to come but has not yet come. And uh, and I think it's an instructive, you know, and Jewish worship does this brilliantly because every year in the Jewish liturgical cycle, on the ninth of Av, the whole of the Book of Lamentations is recited. And on that day in the synagogue, there is people sit on the floor. There is no celebration. There's no readings from the Torah. Uh, it's a day of mourning and fasting. And then the next day, it begins uh, with the comfort thing from Isaiah. And as it moves forward, then towards through the liturgical cycle towards atonement. And so the Jewish people have the, brilliantly captured this insight of saying we need there's a time to weep and there's a time to rejoice and we need to give space for the two but we need to realize that the time to weep is situated within a bigger story and that that story doesn't end with the weeping and as christians you know we want to say the reason we have hope we recognize that there's a cross and we recognize that the creation is marked by brokenness and we recognize that our own lives often are often broken But we know that it can't end that way. We know that it ends with resurrection because the tomb is empty. And so, as Stanley Hervas says this, we can never be hopeless people, even if we might despair. Maybe despair is the wrong word. Even if we might lament, even if we might feel pain, even if we might cry out. And and, and to have an honest and integrated and faithful uh, relationship with God, we need to do that. That's the appropriate human response on certain occasions. But it's never, as if it's a Christian response, it is never hopeless.
0: In the Psalms, there, there's, there's such an honesty of, of, of feeling, an expression of, uh, oftentimes just it, it comes across just as uh, anger toward someone who's uh, hurt the psalmist in some way. And uh, it, 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 it kind of gives the freedom to to feel what we actually do feel, knowing that uh, God has already dealt with both sin, ours and others, so that there's a freedom to to know that he's not going to condemn us for expressing how we actually feel. Uh, And yet, the freedom to express that doesn't isn 't an end in itself, and it doesn 't leave us um, alone in our lament
1: No, no, and the psalms of lament usually move through that and beyond it, not always, but then of course they 're situated within a bigger context and in the bigger context we move beyond that, and those, I mean, some of those psalms are quite troubling, uh, the imprecatory psalms with a particularly psalm one three seven you know yes. the smashing the children on the rocks and so on. You know, how could that? You know, how could that be uh, something? How is that an authorized kind of prayer? And there's just various things we could say about that. You know, but one of them is that it is how the psalmist feels, um, and it is a sense of, of honesty. I mean, Walter Brueggemann brings this out well uh, in his work on um, lamenting psalms. You know, it, there is a brutal honesty um, in, in these psalms, and often one we feel uncomfortable with. But you know he thinks it's important to have that space for that kind of thing, even if you can't end with that you know, that can't be where you stop
0: I've had people ask about that, you know how is it that in the Bible here and and, and sometimes it's attributed to david and, and how can he's a man after God's own heart, yet he's talking like this. How can that be part of the Bible, and how can it be okay to feel that way and I think, well you know um I've said worse than that. I don't say it. I don't publish it for everyone to read. But sometimes when I'm in the car alone, um, and you know, there's a traffic situation, I can get like that. And sometimes when I think of things that someone has done, um, not necessarily to me, but outrageous things that have happened uh, of injustice and so on, I can I feel these things Mm -hmm. And, and, and. I'm no David, but at the same time, I, d- I don't think when we ask a question like that, that uh, we've never felt like that. I, th- I think we've all said things that we would be quite embarrassed if they were played back sure. uh, to an auditorium full of people. Sure. And, we also
1: uh, need to realize, I think, often when you, you see in a psalm, the psalmist will say, Lord, strike my enemies down and, and destroy them, wipe them from the face of the earth or something. You know, what we need to realize what is, you know, it's not often, it's not a sense of personal revenge that they're after. You have to realize that the psalmist is, is speaking from a place of powerlessness. And what the psalmist is not doing is they're not saying, I'm going to take vengeance into my yes, own hands. Right. In a sense, you know, what's going on in the psalm is the psalmist is saying, I am not going to take vengeance into my hands. I'm not in a position to do so, but I'm not going to do so. I am, that is God's role. And so the psalm is a sort of stepping back by the psalmist, saying, I'm, I cannot do anything about this. Um, I'm not going to. This is God's place to do something about this. And that's an important theological lesson for Christians to learn. That, Well, as Paul says, you know, do not seek vengeance, for the Lord says it's mine to repay. So Christians, like the psalmist, step back. And we need to learn that, even from those imprecatory psalms. And the second thing we need to realize is, you know, it's not personal vengeance. They're seeking, they're seeking deliverance and salvation. You know, so, so when they're being persecuted by Assyrians or Babylonians, and they, when they pray destruction on them, what they're actually saying is, Lord, save us. And, it, and the political reality is, what salvation would entail would be for our enemies to be removed. And also, it... Um, It reflects a sense of God's justice and judgment, you know, that these people have acted terribly. I mean, what they have done is is inhuman and it is not inappropriate for God to judge them. Now, of course, for a Christian to pray this prayer, you know, a Christian couldn't simply take it up in in an unreflective way. Um, We'd have to read it through Christ and we'd have to read it in the lives of Christ's saying, you know, love your enemies, forgive those who persecute you, and so on. But I think there are still important lessons um, that Christians need to draw, from, even from these psalms that at first sight seem so outrageous. They're actually prayers of powerless people who need God to deliver them from people who are treating them inhumanly. And they're just being realistic about what that might look like.
0: And in many cases, uh, historically, the enemies of Israel didn't they do some of those kinds of things to uh, uh, to the Israelites?
1: Yeah, I mean, and it would depend when and who, but I mean, certainly uh, there were some atrocities, and I mean, the Babylonian destruction is one instance. The people are kept pushed in the city; they're under siege. There's famine they're uh, dying of starvation, they're dying of disease, cities are ravaged, um, people are you know, locked, killed, exiled, it, it's, it's devastating, not least psychologically, not least in the way they understood their sense of relationship with God, and you know, this, we are the people you've chosen, this is the land that you've put us in, this is your city, this is your temple, this is your king, and now the king's captured, and now, you know, the, the whole world has fallen apart. So it's it's incredibly traumatizing, um, and even aside from the whole issue of there are actually people starving here to death, and there are actually people being killed here. I mean, and the Bible tends to have a to be very down on uh, imperialism, and uh, you know this this comes out in in many ways. But you know here we see the military imperialism, imperial power imposing itself on this little nation and, uh, and the prophets and the psalmists and so on don't tend to warm to that. There's quite a critique of that kind of um, militaristic, expansionistic, imperial empire building thing.
0: Let's, uh, let's switch gears for a moment and talk about uh, Israel in, in salvation history. Is the church a replacement for Israel in the, in the sense of uh, of salvation
1: history? No. Um, Although I have to say that for most of my Christian life, I would have answered yes. And uh, most of my theological life, I would have answered yes. Uh, You know, the way I think is, and I now actually think is one of the things that's blighted Christian theology and Christian history is this whole idea of um, that the church somehow replaces Israel, that, 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 that... the people of Israel have been abandoned, they were faithless, and now we're the people who are doing it properly, uh, fulfilling their mission, and, and so on. And I think this has been absolutely disastrous, not simply for the Jewish people, and it has been disastrous for them, as, as any study of the history of Jewish-Christian relations would show, that Christians have treated Jews despicably uh, over the centuries, and often still do. Uh, not Merely that, but it 's been terrible for us because we have lost a sense of who we are, so I will just give a very brief summary of how I would understand what the church is and, and so on. Not all Christians agree with this, obviously, but uh, the way I think this, it comes out scripturally is that here you have this story: God creates the world and his, his desire in genesis one to eleven is for humanity as a whole it 's for the nations. But creation is fallen, creation is broken. How is God going to deal with this? And the way that God chooses to deal with this is through electing a man, Abraham, and the descendants who come from him. Not simply for their own sake, but also for the sake of the world. That through this nation and through this, what this nation is about, their ministry, uh, is going to be somehow, and it's not clear how at the start, God will bring redemption for the whole created order so we're set up in Genesis with this with way of understanding what Israel's mission is about and Israel is called cool, in some ways like a, a, a new humanity so Abraham is a bit like a new Adam and his descendants living in the land like Adam and Eve living in the garden of Eden and they are to live God's way in God's land modelling um, righteousness and justice following the laws this, this is the calling which they have of course, you know, because of, as Paul says, because of the flesh, actually living Torah is it just doesn't happen. And that over and over again, there are stiff-necked people. They, they can't do this. And then the covenant curses come into play. You know, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God says, if you do not keep the covenant, you know, these curses will come into play. These curses are not the collapse of covenant. They're not the breaking of a relationship, they take place within covenant. Um, God's covenant is irrevocable, Paul says as much, uh, with regard to Israel in Romans 11. God's gift, God's calling, and the covenant with the patriarchs is in place. It is irrevocable, and nothing Israel does can break that, but what it can do is incur all the sort of curses that take place within that. And so God starts to say through the prophets, you know, for Israel to play its role in, in creation, something has got to happen for Israel. Israel itself needs saving. So Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, we, we learn of this with Jeremiah, new covenant that God will make with Israel, where he will put his laws within them. Ezekiel talks about circumcising, well, Deuteronomy speaks of circumcising the heart, and, and God, in Deuteronomy 30, um, verse 6, it talks about after the exile, God will circumcise Israel's hearts and enable them to obey him. And This is what Jeremiah speaks of as a new covenant, and Ezekiel talks about putting the Spirit within you so that you will obey my laws. So we have this solution whereby God will redeem Israel from their exile, and then the nations will come on pilgrimage, they will worship the God of Israel, and so on. Now, I think those Old Testament or the, the, whatever we want to call it, those prophetic expectations of salvation are the key for understanding what uh, New Testament views of the church and everything are about. So, w- what I think is that, you know, Christ, and Tom Wright put this brilliantly um, Christ on the cross is standing in the place of Israel. He is like. Israel writ small, I think he puts it like that. He's one man Israel. And he bears Israel's exilic curses upon himself. And as such, he's bearing the sins of the whole world upon himself because Israel, of course, is a microcosm representative of humanity. And so the sin of the world is focused on him. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, we see the exile and restoration of Israel played out, taken to its climax. And so in the book of Acts, we see this worked out where... Lots of Jewish people start to come and recognize Jesus as their Messiah and receive the Holy Spirit, which is one of the signs of the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit's given and poured out. And so here we see Israel being restored in their very midst. Somehow in the midst of time, in the midst of the old age, here is the end of exile being played out and the giving of the Spirit. And then the Gentiles, the nations with Cornelius and so on, um, come and worship Israel's God and so I think we and then this comes out very clearly in Acts 15 with James and the Jerusalem council we have this picture in Acts and throughout through the other New Testament documents of in the church you have Jew and Gentile united in a single body but they're not sort of blurred together into some mush you know they are both one in Christ both accepted in Christ and because of the saving work of the Messiah but Israel is still Israel with its distinctive calling, and the nations, the Gentiles, are like the pilgrim nations in an, in an eschatological foretaste. So I think the church is like an anticipate, a prophetic anticipation of the end of the age in which we see the promise realized of Israel restored in Jews who accept the Messiah and the pilgrim nations coming uh, in the Gentiles who accept the Messiah united as one body. But the Jews are still Jews. So I think that Jewish believers um, still should be circumcised and follow food laws and so on. Gentile believers absolutely should not. Because the scriptures are clear that when the end times come, the Gentiles will be accepted as Gentiles. They don't have to convert to Judaism. And Paul is just emphatic about this. If Christ has brought in the New Age, then Gentiles not only don't have to, they must not get circumcised. Uh, So I think we we have a vision here of the church in which Jew and Gentile exist as Jew and Gentile, side by side, in one body, but without saying, as has happened in the history of the church, any Jew who becomes a believer has changed their religion and uh, ceases to be Jewish and has to give up anything that looks distinctively Jewish. Jewish. I just think this is a a complete misunderstanding of what the New Testament is about and is actually failing to be the kind of church that Jesus aimed to bring about, uh, of a uh, restored Israel anticipated. For the end times, when, God, when all Israel will be saved, it says in Romans 11, and, uh, and all the nations will come and worship, which is uh, anticipated in the church prophetically. You've been watching You're
0: Included, a production of Grace Communion International.